to The Watershed Investigations, Tales from the Frontline of the Water Crisis. I'm Rachel Salvage and I'm here, as usual, with Liana Hazia to discuss the most important climate change meeting of the year, COP28, which this time is in the UAE, a location that many people find controversial because, not only because it's an oil-producing state, but because the president this year is chief executive of the country's state oil company. But before they struck oil, did you know that the UAE was a nation of pearl divers and traders? They were doing this for thousands of years. And of course, back then, they didn't have any underwater diving equipment. So they would just hold their breaths and dive down sometimes up to 20 or 30 metres into the ocean to gather oysters for pearls. So Emiratis would have had this deep relationship with the ocean, which is the subject of our podcast today, the relationship between climate change and the oceans. Now, the most stark impact of climate change is obviously sea level rise, and there is nowhere in the world more impacted by this than the Pacific island nation of Tuvalu. We're lucky to have managed to grab a quick interview with Grace Malia, a Tuvaluan youth delegate from the Rising Nations Initiative. She's on her phone and she's in between meetings at the COP in Dubai. And she's also the protagonist in a new documentary, Tuvalu, Paradise Lost. Let's hear a quick clip from the film before we hear from Grace. Halfway between Australia and Hawaii, in the midst of the Pacific Ocean, nine tiny islands, home to the 11,000 people of Tuvalu. These strips of land have sustained our people for over 3,000 years. But the world is on fire. It's now too late to leave. Seek shelter as the fire approaches. The glass is melting. The sea is rising. The climate time bomb is ticking. My paradise is at the very front line and will soon be paradise lost. Hi, Grace. Hi. Grace, tell us why you're at COP. What's at stake for you? What's at stake? As a Tuvaluan youth, everything is at stake. It's our identity, it's our land, it's our rights, and it's our sovereignty. That's what's at stake right now. Can you describe to us what's happening on your islands and how climate change has been impacting you? What changes you're seeing already in your own lifetime? A lot has changed. I mean, the beaches that I used to play as a, as a child, and now when I revisit those places, you know, you'll just see the ocean, you know, it's due to coastal erosion, it's eating away places that we used to play as kids. And my grandfather will talk about his memories and the places that he would revisit. And actually now he told me that three islets on the main island have submerged due to increase in sea level rise. Are storms also getting worse? Yes, storms are getting worse. We now have prolonged drought seasons that last year we called a state of emergency and we went without rainwater for about two months. And so coming from a family that consists mostly of girls, we the women have to carry six buckets every morning and every evening to fill from one place and then take it all the way back to our homes and live on these six buckets daily um, for about a month and having to have that access to a basic need you know it's it's not humane if I may add Um, and now that because of increase in sea level rise you know 
our lands are being washed away. And because of that, our identity is tied to, you know, whatever the sea is taking from our lands, you know. And through our lands, we are connected, our identity and our culture. So everything is interlinked in Tuvalu, that if one thing is removed, if one thing is relocated, if one thing is no longer there, our entire identity, our entire existence is threatened. NASA's sea level change group visited Tuvalu to give projections. What did they say? Mm. They say that it is important that everyone works on maintaining our sea temperatures, our global temperatures, well below 1.5 degrees. Because if we do, I mean, Tuvalu is mainly two meters above sea level. And so if we do not remain 1.5 degrees, you know, by 2050, the entire island will become uninhabitable. The Pacific Island negotiators have been disappointed in the past at uh, COPs. For example, they condemned COP26 in Glasgow as a monument of failure with outcomes watered down. I myself was at COP in 2009 in Copenhagen when Tuvalu's protocol to force deep cuts in global emissions failed. And at the last hour, leaders of the most powerful nations sort of cut their own deal behind closed doors. And at this COP28, there have been these reports on the host nation's plans to use its role to strike oil and gas deals, which they deny. What's your sense of what might be achieved at this COP? You know, our Pacific negotiators are really, really working in the negotiation rooms, and we really commend the work that they're doing. But we know following all the social media reports, you know, there's a progress on loss and damage fund, which was just established last year. And we have seen all these pledges, but still failing to address 1.5 degrees Celsius and on phasing out of fossil fuels. There's still more work needed on that area. And in COP being at the one of the places that depends on the oil industry, you know, on fossil fuels. It's uh, it's kind of funny. I don't know what these guys are planning to do, but we're just leaving it to our negotiators. We're leaving it to our leaders to, to make their work. And we're also doing our work as the youths on the side events to call on a global action on, on the things that we need from the Pacific. Are there these sort of reports that we're hearing about potential commitment to phase down fossil fuels in the coming decades? Is this going to be enough? Would that be a failure for you unless there's an agreement to phase it out with an actual time frame? We are literally running out of time. And if they keep debating on this, if they keep dragging it to other cops to have the conversation around facing out fossil fuels, it's taking too long. And, you know, as we speak right now, a teenager in Tuvalu would lose a place that they would play as a kid. So we do not have time for more conversations on fossil fuels facing out. They know what to do. Have the negotiators, uh, sorry, the negotiators of the Island Alliance of Small Island States, of which Tuvalu is a part, have you had any promises or assurances from more powerful nations to lobby for your interests? And is Australia an ally? Well, uh, I do not know how to answer that question, but Australia has recently signed a treaty with Tuvalu called the Falepili Treaty, and it reassures that you know, um, with relocation you know, as a plan B for Tuvalu. But all I can say is that we're here, youth in the Pacific, we are out here fighting and we're creating movements with other international youths and doing everything that we could to make our stories heard so they know that whatever's happening, you know, it's affecting us in Tuvalu, in the Pacific, where we contribute the least to greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Would relocation to Australia, would that be something that you would consider? 
it's funny that we, the youth of Tuvalu, are having these conversations because it's not what well, it's not a usual conversation to have, and it's a it's a sensitive topic. But when we would converse with the other youth, you know, our main thing is to remain in Tuvalu as long as we can. We want to stay in Tuvalu. We do not want to relocate anywhere else. I was reading about the Tuvalu Coastal Adaptation Project, so sort of to relocate within Tuvalu to sort of new raise safe land. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Our government is now having serious discussions on what we can do if people are not moving. You know, people from the international community are not doing anything or not doing enough. And so our government is working on Tuvalu Coastal Adaptation Program where they they are building on this 72-hectare land near the main central area of the main island. And it's uh, elevating, you know, two meters above the normal height of the land in, on the main island. And so we've seen it and it's... People People are out there, you know, the youth are out there enjoying this new space. And I'm really happy that the government is working on other ways to, you know, because we're trying to do everything that we can to remain in Tuvalu, on Tuvalu. I mean, if the world doesn't act for Tuvalu, Grace, what does this mean for your people? And also, what does that mean for the rest of the world? What does it mean for my people? It just means that there is no humanity if people don't act. And if people don't have humanity, there is no hope. And what's happening to us right now is their future. It's coming to their doorstep. And if we don't act now, if we don't save Tuvalu, we're not going to save the world. Thank you so much, Grace. <sighs> Thank you. That was so powerful. I mean, imagine facing losing your entire country. Our next guest is also at COP28, where she is championing the ocean as a source of hope to avoid the worst of the climate crisis and enable us to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. Margaret Lenin is the director of Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. Hi, Margaret, and welcome to the Watershed podcast. And so you're at the COP now in Dubai, and in, in past COPs, oceans you know, haven't really featured as highly on the agenda as they might, um, but that seems to be changing. Do you think they're in the right place now? Are people talking about the right topics when it comes to oceans? I would say they're going in the right direction. They're not quite in the right place yet. When they first started having climate conferences 28 years ago, we didn't know that the ocean was becoming more acidic. We didn't realize that the entire ocean was warming. So as we've had these insights, it became more and more clear that we had to have dialogue with climate scientists. And so since that Paris Agreement said that we had to be thinking about the oceans, we've worked to enhance that dialogue. And here, having the Ocean Pavilion today, there were sessions on decarbonizing marine shipping, climate justice. And how are negotiators and world leaders responding? Are they starting to get it when it comes to oceans? Are there some countries that are more reluctant to prioritize ocean action? Leaders are responding very strongly to this. We had a session that included the president of the UN General Assembly. It included Prince Albert of Monaco, the Secretary of State for the Seas for France. And that was just the first row of the audience. Those people 
for the first time, were coming to oceanographers to say, we have problems and we are looking for your answers. The ocean's role in mitigating climate change, I think it's been hugely undervalued because, I mean, the oceans, as I understand it, absorb the majority of the heat generated from global warming. And it's really buffered us from more intense weather impacts. But what is that doing to oceans? Yes, the oceans have absorbed more than 90% of the heat generated by greenhouse gases. And as I said, the entire ocean is warming. Now we're seeing things like marine heat waves that are affecting the biology of the ocean. And those heat waves also affect climate on land. So I live in San Diego, California, which is right on the ocean. And in 2014, we had a year-long marine heat wave that completely changed the average weather in San Diego for a couple of years. What did it do to the weather in San Diego? So we had a major drought that was a multi-year drought. So you talked a bit about mitigation of climate disturbance with the ocean. Between 25 and 30 percent of the CO2 that we've put into the atmosphere as a result of burning fossil fuels has gone into the ocean. But there is a lot more capacity of the ocean to take up CO2. So for example, mangroves really trap carbon. And the way that they do that is that they trap mud and sediment that's coming down the rivers and the roots of the mangroves. We've also just heard someone from Tuvalu whose country is disappearing. And what I found interesting as well is that the heating of the ocean is actually causing sea level rise, isn't it? And according to NASA, we're going to see sea level rise even if we shut down all fossil fuels today because some of those changes are already locked in. I mean, how much sea level rise are we looking at? Obviously, we're not going to stop fossil fuels today. So realistically, on this current trajectory, what is that scenario looking like? The minimum estimates by the end of the century, the minimum estimates are a foot. Now, that doesn't sound like much because we think about it like it was a bathtub. And so sea level is a foot higher, you know, so what? I'm three feet above the ocean at my house on the shore, so why do I worry about a foot? It's because that the real risk associated with sea level rise is from major storms. And when we have major storms, the wave systems on top of that foot of sea level come much higher. Waves come up on the shore, so we call that run-up. So there's storm surge and then there's also the run-up, and that's far bigger than the one foot. So even the minimum numbers that people are talking about for sea level rise will cause many feet of impact of sea level rise inland. So yes, uh, Tuvalu is, is very concerned about this, and they have been working with organizations to map the entire shallow water area around Tuvalu to know exactly what they're dealing with underwater. And then they are using that information to put together both natural structures like seagrass beds and so forth, and also artificial berms of sediment and material that they would build up to protect them from that storm surge and, and run up.
Should people be moving away from living on coastlines now, given what you're talking about? I know that it's been looked at in the UK. They've looked at cost-benefit analysis for sort of flood defences and decided we can't protect it all, so people are going to have to move, but they've not put anything into policy. Do you think that's something that uh, we should be looking at a little bit sooner? Well, we should, but the situation for Tuvalu is very different from the situation for for UK. Uh, Tuvalu, for those that haven't seen it on a map, is a little narrow band of land, an atoll. It's surrounded by water. In many places, the island is only about 50 feet wide. So it's not like UK where you could go many miles inland. Tuvalu and other island nations really have an existential problem. They need us to stop warming so that sea level stops rising so that they can continue to live on their island. In the case of the developed world or or places that are continents with space to go, I think the issue is trying to understand how best to organize moving away over a few decades. So if your town is not flooding now, are there things that governments can do to encourage you over time to move away from that hazard? Of course, some of these places that could flood though are like major, major cities. Yes. So I'll give you an example. In California, recently, insurance has changed. It used to be that if your house was destroyed by, say, a a major storm, that insurance would pay you for the house, but they wouldn't pay you for the land if you wanted to move away from that hazard. Now in California, if your house is destroyed by a wildfire or by a coastal storm, you will have the option to get paid for the land as well as the house and move somewhere. If you can afford insurance. Yes. And that, of course, is different than a low-lying country like Bangladesh, where great swaths of the coastline are only a couple feet above water. And there, it's really a question of how does the government provide incentives for millions of people to move away from a hazardous zone? And that's going to have to involve, for example, debt structures for the country that would allow them to start developing inland to provide opportunities for people to move inland. It's not one size fits all. It's very different from Tuvalu to Bangladesh, to California. Sure. So you've helped to organise the Dubai Oceans Initiative, which a lot of conservation and research organisations have signed up to. Can you tell us a little bit about it and why you're calling for more ocean observation globally and the benefits of that? Yes, the United Nations is designing and executing what they call the global stock take, taking stock of where we are with respect to climate. They need observations to be able to do. For example, marine heat waves. You need to have observed the temperature of the ocean, not just right at the surface, but also how deep does this heat wave go? Fisheries that are sensitive to heat start moving toward the poles. But if you haven't had ocean observations, you don't know where the fish are now. You don't know how far it's moving. And how do you balance sort of the investment in research with sort of investment in 
properly protected sort of marine parks. So one problem that we have here is that we've got lots of marine parks. That's great, but they're actually not really protected from the damaging activities. So they've you know been termed paper parks. I think there was some movement to create highly protected marine areas. I think we have two very small areas that are highly protected, but other than that, they seem to be protected in name only. I mean, should there be more investment around that? Investments in marine protected areas are very important, but now that you've protected them, are you sure that fish are, are thriving there? And we have lots of examples around the world where people set up a marine protected area and after five or six years, fishermen said, what happened? Are there more fish? If they're not, then why protect it? The Oceans Initiative also outlines that there should be monitoring, reporting and verifying of new emerging ocean-based carbon dioxide removal strategies. But how can CO2 be removed or how can more be stored in the ocean? Is it seagrass restoration or would we just need too much seagrass for this to be realistic? What are some of those solutions? Well, I talked a little bit about mangroves. Seagrasses are another potent way of sequestering carbon. Portfolio of different Yes. Well, there, there are technological solutions too. So for example, you take carbon out of the surface ocean and try to sink it into the deeper ocean and then replace some of the CO2 that's in the atmosphere into the ocean. But I think that we need to understand which of them work and how well they work. Could there be a tipping point, though, or some kind of planetary boundary for the ocean to be able to properly function and provide carbon sequestration? It must have a maximum, right? So it's very, very robust to the addition of CO2 or the subtraction of CO2. But it does change a little. That's why we're getting acidification. But I would say to you that it is changing as a result of what we are doing now. And uh, just finally, I'd like to end on some of your reflections of the COP so far. It has been mired in a little bit of controversy. I'm sure you've seen that the head of the summit, who is also head of the UAE's state oil company, has sparked a bit of a, an argument about phasing out fossil fuels and whether that can limit it to 1.5 degrees. So do you think that's going to create a problem for negotiations? And do you think we're going to achieve something for oceans and for sort of climate more broadly at this COP? He actually made a very nuanced statement. He said there was no scientific evidence that the elimination of fossil fuels would get us to 1.5. And that is true. The last IPCC report said that in order to get to 1.5, we actually had to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Technically, his statement was correct, but I think it did ignore the fact that it is necessary to remove fossil fuels. So what's your big hope for this COP? I mean, in an ideal world, it closes and there's an agreement has been reached. What would be your sort of dream result from the COP? We have had one big dream result, and that was the loss and damage fund. That was something that we were trying to get done at the last COP, and it didn't quite happen, but there was a lot of work in between the COPs, and here we are with this new loss and damage fund right away, first day. Liana, you said right at the beginning, we're not going to stop emitting fossil fuels tomorrow, and we're not. But we need to take every opportunity that we have to move away from them. If that's wind power, let's have it. If it's solar, let's have it. If it's using 
green electricity to drive electric vehicles, let's do it. We need to stop saying, oh, this piece won't solve the problem. But if we put together all of the pieces that we can, we will start moving in that direction. It takes the will of the leadership to say, okay, we can do this, so we will do it. Oh, great. I want to oh, ask more questions as well, but I know we don't have time, you know, like uh, deep sea mining or the minerals for all these renewables, but yes, but I guess we'll have to maybe speak to you another time. There are some very interesting things going on in research that are looking at molecules that will do that electron transfer that the rare earths do and that all of these metals that are targeted by deep sea mining will do. I would predict that in 25 years we won't be talking about having to mine deep sea metals, nodules, hydrothermal areas, etc., in order to solve that problem. In 25 years, I think we'll be doing something else. Thank you so much. That's been really enlightening. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to The Watershed Investigations with Liana Hosea and Rachel Salvage. We hope you join us again in a fortnight.